Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. And as I tell you every episode, by golly, it is available as a paperback, an audiobook, and an ebook is free. Free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Once you get hooked on the series, I'm so confident that you're going to purchase books two and three. I'm happy to give you the first one for free. And I know what you're thinking, Rob, do you have to tell us every week? I really do, because every week is somebody's first episode. And why would we want to deny them the joy of finding their copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees? Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written some stuff for older readers. You can find out more about that, more about all of my projects, uh, not to mention thousands of interviews with agents, authors, editors, all the finest people at middlegradeninja.com. You can also get the back catalog of the show. And that is plenty of preamble. We've got to get to it. Oh, my gosh. We've got Emily Barth Eisler uh, with us this evening. I uh, couldn't be more thrilled to chat with you. Emily, how are you? Hi, I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you very much uh, for making the time. Uh, esteemed audience knows that I would never make you sit through me doing your biography or talking about your book, how painful for everyone that would be. Uh, so the best spot to start is if you would give, uh, give us an overview of your background and we'll go from there. Sure. Uh, well, I am a writer of middle grade and I also write uh, across a lot of age ranges and genres for kids. But my first book that is being published is Aftermath, which is a middle grade novel. Uh, I live in California with my husband and two kids. I'm a recent transplant to California, though, um, longtime New Yorker. So um, that's been a, a recent good adjustment to California life. I also write about... Um, organic, sustainable, and eco-friendly beauty and self-care products um, for magazines and websites. So that's one of my other passions. And I've written for all sorts of websites, uh, personal essays, sitcoms, parenting columns, you name it. I've probably done some of the writing. So I'm just excited to be here with my first book and thrilled to finally really join the KidLit community. We are going to hopefully talk about all of those things <laughs> because I am uh, very excited about um, uh, all of the different types of writing that you've done. Uh, and I know you were also uh, a child actress, child star, whatever, mm -hmm. whatever the term is. Uh, star might be more generous than necessary, but sure, let's go with child actor. And you were in, I saw two short films credited to you. Were you in, how many projects were you involved in and how long? Were you a child actress? Um, I started acting when I was five, and I worked up until about when I turned 30. So I worked for about 25 years in acting. I started out doing mainly musical theater, regional theater, summer stock, that kind of stuff. Um, regional mostly in the Baltimore, Washington area, which is where I grew up. Um, I did a lot of commercials and industrials, again, mostly local Baltimore area. My parents tried really hard to keep me having somewhat of a normal childhood. So I did not go to New York or LA um, at that point and uh, really worked mostly locally and um, with the theater community in Baltimore and Washington, which is an amazing group of people. I feel really lucky to have had um, such a positive and fascinating experience as a child. 
Um, I moved to New York after college and that's when I started doing television and film. I had a small recurring role on a soap opera, One Life to Live. And I did some other soap opera work on um, Days of Our Lives. And I did some other small parts on soap operas. I did a lot of the soap operas for a while. Um, other TV stuff, some theater, some children's theater, kind of all over the place. And uh, hit that 25 year mark and decided that I was really ready to visit a different area of my creativity. I'd always wanted to be a writer. That was something sort of in the back of my mind and in my back pocket. Um, and towards the end of my acting career, those two things kind of overlapped. And it was a reminder to me that writing was something I really, really wanted to do. And it was a convenient lifetime for me. It was around the time when uh, my husband and I were thinking about having kids and uh, being a writer, is it easier for me to juggle with also being a mom than the acting career was. Um, obviously people make it work in all sorts of different ways, but for us, this is what seemed to make the most sense. Um, so it all it all kind of came together nicely timing wise too. When's the first time you thought to yourself, I think I'd like to be a writer someday? I mean, before I even remember consciously thinking of it, it was something that was so very much ingrained in me because my dad is a writer and my grandfather was a writer. And so it felt very logical and obvious to me that it was something that I could do. You know, there's that um, that thing about representation. If you can see it, you can be it. And I'm very lucky that the representation of working writers was very clear in my life. So it didn't feel at all um, like a big reach or controversy. I mean, of course, becoming a published writer in, you know, particular genres is, you know, there are different kinds of ways to be a writer and certainly some are harder to achieve than others. But in general, the concept of becoming a writer felt very attainable and downright normal to me because it was, you know, the family, the family business, for lack of a better phrase. So nobody said to you, you're going to starve, that there's no way that could ever work out? No, they only said that to me about being an actor. I think for my family, becoming a writer after having been an actor felt downright normal. And the, you know, the hours are better. I Another thing I used to do as an actor when I lived in New York is I was one of the sort of regular recurring background actors on Saturday Night Live. So anytime they needed like a, a group of people in the background, I was one of the people they would call. But which was super cool and I learned so much and that's why I love that job. But it did involve going to work at, you know, like 5 p.m. on Thursday and resurfacing sometime in the early hours of Sunday. So in terms of, you know, stability and normalcy, I think everybody thought that writing felt very normal compared to trying to be an actor in New York. I had to be a lot of fun when you were in your early 20s though. Super fun, incredible experiences, you know, I mean, a lot of sitting around. And honestly, what I used to do, this was before smartphones, you know, and I used to just bring books with me and made my way through the New York Public Library YA section while I was sitting backstage at Saturday Night Live or at One Life to Live or anywhere else. You know, being an actor involves a ton of waiting. And it's the same thing I used to do as a kid when I was in musicals and you'd inevitably have downtime backstage and I would just read. I always had a book with me and 
I think those two things are so uh, commingled in my mind. You know, it was it was not a big leap to me from storytelling in one way and reading to then storytelling in another way and writing. So I'm uh, esteemed audience has heard me harp on this before because I'm I'm so convinced that every writer should take at least one acting class. Oh. Um, what aspects of, of your acting career have you been able to bring to your, your creating of characters and fiction writing? It's a wonderful question. And I'd say the, the number one thing is adaptability and thinking quickly on your feet. Um, well, and I'm gonna, oh, I'm gonna expand that. I'm gonna come back to that. The other thing is recognizing all members of the team and, and sort of the appreciation for the more behind the scenes people, because I think that's something that you really um, appreciate a ton early on in theater. And I think a lot of writers think of writing as more of a solo endeavor and don't understand the value of, or the importance of all of the behind the scenes team members as a writer, whether it's, you know, your agent, your editor, the production manager, the designer, the typesetter, you know, I mean, there are just a million jobs that make a book what it is. And my background as an actor definitely prepared me for the importance of and the reverence towards that entire cast of characters. But back to my sort of my first answer there about um, adaptability. One of my favorite acting jobs that I had growing up from the ages of, I think 13 to 18, I was in a traveling troupe called the Young Columbians um, with uh, with two really amazing directors, Toby Ornstein and Carol Graham-Lehan, who were both really amazing teachers and influences to me in terms of teaching me how to be a storyteller. And in this group, we performed all over the East Coast and we did a show that was the history of America. And so we would perform everywhere from county fairs to we performed at the White House for the Clinton Christmas party in, I want to say 1996, but I might have the year wrong. Um, so, you know, the White House, county fairs and everything in between. When a governor got elected, we would sing, at the, you know, in like Pennsylvania at the at the governor's victory party or, you know, things like that. So wide variety of occasions from fancy to casual. And so sometimes it would be a county fair and you'd get there and the stage was just kind of a big flat dirt area and some bales of hay. And our challenge was, you know, you might get 10 minutes on stage to do a sound check. And so it was figuring out like, okay, how are we going to do our show in this particular environment? Or you get to the White House with no prep because of security, you know, you're in a holding room and they let you go and then you're out standing in a room and it's like, okay, go do your show. So, um, you know, and again, everything in between. Sometimes, you know, we did a ton of performances at nursing homes and children's centers, all ages, all uh, types of audiences. And so there was just a ton of reading the room, figuring out what was gonna work, what wasn't gonna work, everything from physically of what we would have space for on the stage. And there would be a lot of like, okay, we're gonna have to uh, cut that dance number and just sing the song. You know, it was a, it was a musical number review. So um, just, I mean, incredible training, five years of, of doing that and, um, you know, also just getting used to working with tons of different people. It was obviously a rotating cast of people uh, coming in and out, depending on the day and the show and who was available and who had what conflicts. And so there was so much um, appreciation for working together and just making it work. And, you know, the, the old cliche, the show must go on. Um, 
And the way that folds into my writing, you know, is is the ability to just, you know, I like to say I never have writer's block because I don't believe in it. And of course, I have moments where I don't know what I want to write or I feel completely lost or absolutely out of ideas and bereft. But because of my background in theater and the show having to go on, when I have a deadline or I have something that needs to get written, it's imbued in me this uh, this ability to be like, okay, well, I, we gotta we gotta do something, and that has really helped me be a productive writer, um, and also to think on my feet if something's not working to say, okay, um, let's try something else, let's do this. Uh, so there's kind of a, a can-do attitude of creativity that uh, I can't imagine working without. We're going to talk more about this idea of no writer's block. Uh, mm -hmm. If you don't believe in writer's block, sometimes it believes in you. Uh, but I am fascinated. Oh, it you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, I was just saying writer's block will, it will find you. But I think part of that too is, um, you know, I was saying my dad and my grandfather are both writers. And uh, my grandfather wrote for a newspaper, the Washington Post, back when the paper had to go to bed at a certain time, which means it would get laid out to be printed for the next morning. Um, and my dad uh, is a retired television news reporter. And same thing where the news comes on at 5 p.m. or 6 p.m., depending which segment of the news you're doing. And there's no like pushing your date back or having writer's block for either of them. I grew up with those examples of, you know, the news comes on at five, so you better have something to say. And I think that really informed um, my feelings about writer's block. Obviously, there are days where the writing that I do is not anything I want published, but I feel like I'm able to always get something out because I'm thinking of it sort of in the in the newsroom kind of style or the show must go on or any of those things that informed my creative style. Well, I'm curious, um, with your uh, grandfather being a very well-known writer and then your father a writer also, is there a sense when you're acting of rebellion that, no, I don't want to go into the family business? Um, absolutely, yes. I think there was, in my mind, almost a foregone conclusion that I would find my way to writing eventually. Um, because I knew, I always knew that was something I wanted to do and it didn't feel like it had the same kind of time urgency. I had a sense that becoming an actor or that working as an actor was something that I needed to get out of my system and do when I was young. Which of course, part of that is our patriarchal society that says people are more attractive when they're young, which is a whole other problem and we can get into that, but I, I think your esteemed audience gets it. Um, so that was part of it, but also the part of it was I knew from being a child actor that there was sort of an expiration point for the way that I wanted to do it. I'd watched enough adults do it and need to leave the kind of theater that I had done either to get a job with more um, stability or better benefits or to have a family and be able to choose different working hours. Or I'd sort of seen enough adults come and go that I knew it wasn't something I wanted to do forever. So I felt like acting was a very temporary thing. I wanted to give it a shot. I knew writing would be there and I knew that writing didn't have that same kind of constraint. Um, and I think also just writing to me feels you know i've had a lot of people say like oh it must be nice to be a writer 
you're more behind the scenes. Nobody's looking at you. The attention isn't on you the same way physically. You could stay in your pajamas all day, those kinds of things. And that's absolutely true. But at the same time, being a writer is a different kind of, you know, being naked in front of people metaphorically. You are bearing your soul and your ideas in a different way. That being an actor, to me, always felt very comfortable because you're dressed up. You're saying somebody else's words most of the time. You're in a costume. Sometimes you're putting on an accent. There's there's no part of it that's you. Whereas to me, being a writer feels incredibly, incredibly personal. So I do think that delaying the start of my writing career was maybe not so much a rebellion, but a little bit of a of a I knew what was going to be involved and was a little bit scared of it because I knew how um, how personal it was going to be for me. And I think I put that off until I really was ready to to go there. Well, I imagine that uh, once you're done with the point of rebellion, there's also an incredible amount of pressure. Your, your grandfather's an incredibly well-known writer. Uh, you've got you know big shoes to to fill when you're when you're coming to the writing game. Yeah, I think that's it too. But also, um, you know, I think I realized a couple years. You know, I think of my acting career as having two very distinct chapters with college in the middle. And when I did it as a kid, it was purely for fun. Um, I was not supporting my family financially or nor was I, you know, trying to build any particular kind of career. I was doing it because I loved it. Like I really just legitimately loved singing and dancing and being on stage. When I when I sort of, you know, took a break and went to college and then moved to New York to become an adult actor, it felt incredibly different to me and the pressure to make a living, to shape a career, to have longevity, to make connections, all of that stuff, you know, really took the fun out of it for me. And it felt incredibly different than having done it as a child. Whereas I think had I come to it initially as an adult, I may not have had that perspective. I may not have um, saw the ways in which it was lacking compared to having done it as a child. And I think that really affected me and I kept waiting for that feeling to go away and it didn't. And it just, I got to the point where I felt like, you know, this isn't fun anymore. This isn't, it's not just for the joy. And um, it wasn't, I mean, nothing as an adult is ever quite how you imagine it as a kid. But it certainly, it was different enough that I felt like it wasn't, I was in it for the wrong reasons. I was doing it because it was a habit and I was sort of chasing the experience I'd had as a kid, not realizing that when you do something as an adult and you're trying to make a career out of it, it's going to have a very different tenor emotionally. And for me, that juxtaposition was enough to like zap the fun out of it and really, um, I was not able to kind of reset my framework around it. When you were a kid, did you have the um, awareness that, oh, I'm I'm at the Clinton White House in, in 1996. This is a special moment. This is something that, that other kids aren't aren't going to have. Or was it just this is no. Um, no. And that's one of the beautiful and terrible things about having really cool experiences as a young child is that you lack perspective which is the only thing that makes it all possible. Cause I think if I knew the, the magnitude of some of the stuff I was doing, I would have been terrified. So in some ways it was my saving grace, but in other ways, I think, um, I think I thought my life would just always be like that. 
you know, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm singing at the White House tomorrow and the next week I've got this governor election. And then like in January we're doing, you know, I was very fortunate that my life was full of these like crazy, fascinating experiences. And I definitely, um, you know, I think it goes both ways. I also didn't understand that that there was anything bigger and more out there. I, I think I was really focused. You know, this was before the Internet, before social media, I was very happily focused sort of in my lane, feeling like my life and my experiences were fantastic and amazing and all I could ever want. And I didn't really look to this to either side of it um, and felt, you know, just really comfortable and happy and satisfied where I am. And I feel for kids and teenagers and adults today where I think there's so much comparison culture obviously because of social media and there's so much opportunity to feel not enough or too much or whatever it is. And um, I, I think I was just completely blissfully unaware. You know, my sister was also a child actor and she did some opera stuff at the Kennedy Center with the Washington Opera. And then I auditioned for the next one and they offered me a part. But at the same time, I got offered a different part and I took that and, you know, there were all of these, there was an opportunity to go on tour with Les Mis at one point. And my mom said, do you want to do that? And I was like, no, I just, I think I want to stay and do second grade. You know, I just kind of want to stay home. I didn't want to go there. You know, I just had no concept and also, yeah, like turned down the Washington Opera at the Kennedy Center because I had, you know, the chance to do a, a play at school that I really wanted to do. And so I was lucky in that way that I didn't have the perspective to be like, oh, no, the Washington Opera is going to look way better on your resume. You should really do that one. My parents really let me lead in the best way. And I think I made the choices that normal seven and eight-year-olds would make without context because I didn't know any better. And in that way, it, you know, it remained full of joy. And I think that's what I was talking about, about becoming an adult actor. You don't have the luxury to take the fun choice. You take the Kennedy Center because that's the more prestigious job and it's going to look better on your resume and it's going to lead to all these other things. And for me, then that by the time I was, you know, in that situation, I was like, oh, this is just not bringing me the same kind of joy to be able to be like, no, I want to do community theater because it's a much better, you know, like I know, I know Joe and he's in that show and we're going to have fun together. So it's just a different vibe. I am fascinated. These are, these are big time opportunities uh, that we're talking about. And your parents are still saying, no, no, writing. That's that's the, the safe choice. Go. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I, I guess it's all just, again, it's perspective. It's whatever you come from, you know, because that was, you know, that was the way that my family was supported. And that was the way that my dad's family was supported. You know, it just seems normal. It's as if, if my dad and my grandfather had all been doctors, you know, I'm sure I might have felt tempted to go into that. It's, it's what's familiar and the people around you, you know, are all in that field. And it, as a result, becomes very attainably attainable seeming. I don't know somewhere in there between the uh, childhood acting and the the adult acting, and then we're we're gonna pivot more toward writing. I promise. Uh, but I know that you got a, a BA in film studies from Wesleyan University, and while you're there, you're taking all the writing classes that you possibly can, and you have mm -hmm. the opportunity to be taught by Lemony Snicket. Is that right? I did. I got to take a class with Daniel Handler, who. Um, don't tell, but that's, uh, he's the writer behind Lemony Snicket. I don't know if that's, but I'm kidding. It's not a secret. Um, but uh, yes, he was teaching a creative nonfiction class at Wesleyan University where he went. 
And I was lucky enough to get into that class. You know, you had to write an essay and get chosen and I got super lucky. And um, it was such a formative experience for me. I had not really done a lot of reading of creative nonfiction. Um, you know, because there's nonfiction, which is news and sort of the more like journalism and that kind of stuff on one hand that I was familiar with. And then on the other hand was fiction. And the class he was teaching was really sort of the combination of both of the more David Sedaris, David Foster Wallace kind of, um, you know, personal essay writing. And it was something up until then I had no experience in. And it was such an, an eye-opening class in so many ways. I learned so much, but also just introduced me to writers I otherwise hadn't read at that point. And um, Daniel Handler or Lemony Snicket was a really, really lovely, generous, thoughtful professor. Um, and, you know, he had been a student there and it was really fun to sort of, uh, again, it comes back to this idea of representation. And if you can see it, you can be it. I think that was another moment of like, oh, I can do this. You know, I'm a student here at Wesleyan. He went to Wesleyan and he went on and became a writer. So like, oh, there's a path. Um, it's, it's really amazing. And I, I recognize my privilege every day that I was able to see those opportunities and take those chances. Not every kid, not every college student gets an opportunity to see somebody like them do the thing that they want to do. And of course, that is half of the key to success and and why it's so important, I think, to work towards granting access for everybody to be exposed to seeing themselves or a version of them doing the thing that they might want to do, because it does make it easier. You you know that it's possible. And and that is, you know, a huge part of the, the step in the journey. It's a, it's a very nice one of the more positive aspects of, of social media is that everybody that you'd ever maybe want to talk to is if not accessible not as unaccessible as they they right. were no that's a great point and certainly something different from my childhood um and i'm grateful on a daily basis that the internet was not around or what it is when i was a teenager because i have no idea what I would have gotten into or wanted or set my sights on. But but yes, the great thing about social media is the the access and the representation. You're absolutely right. That's fantastic. And I hope that it really helps kids. You know, as a writer, I'm so excited to visit schools and show kids, you know, this is what a person looks like who's also an author. You can be this too. You know, you it's not some mythical, magical person. They were real people and you can be one of these people. Um, but they do also have that access on the internet now, which is fantastic. So um, I'm assuming uh, that your time in the, you know, in the makeup chair as an actress gets you interested in beauty and in makeup and in all sorts of things. Yes, exactly. Start doing freelance writing um, and, and, and writing articles and the like? It started out purely as a hobby. I, uh, You're absolutely right that a lifetime working in theater had me always fascinated by makeup and skincare and, you know, being a working actor is hard on your skin because you're constantly putting makeup on and taking it off and you know so I, I had sort of a hobbyist level interest in that um, and really truly just kind of stumbled into blogging a friend of mine and I were always exchanging ideas and tips and she said you know we should instead of just emailing each other we should put this in a blog you know this was 
2009. Uh, blogs were still kind of new and novel. And she was like, maybe people will send us free products for us to write about. And I was like, okay, I mean, you know, I didn't really think of this as becoming anything. And we did just that. And sure enough, you know, we would request companies to send us products that we could write about. And it, you know, it took off to some degree. And then my friend decided this wasn't for her. And I was so enthralled and really enjoying the writing aspect of it and and that I was able to combine you know multiple things that I was interested in and a, another friend was like you've got to stop giving this away for free you're doing the job of a freelance writer you should start you know really um, trying to get paid for this this is a job and I was like no 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 this is just a hobby this is just for fun but Obviously, eventually she she wore me down and she was correct that um, and I, I feel like that's an important turning point for writers in general, figuring out, you know, when you've done your 10,000 hours and uh, are ready to to start asking for what you're worth for compensation for something versus doing it for free. And I'm glad, you know, I did write for free for a long time, not just blogging, but then I also wrote for some websites when they were new, when I was new. And really did get the experience I needed and learned a ton. But it was important to figure out that moment where I needed to say, oh, gosh, I am giving away a skill and my time for free. If I want this to be a career, this is the moment to start, you know, uh, looking at it that way and treating it that way. And it was very hard to ask, you know, to say, I want to do this professionally and I, I would like to be paid for my time. Super hard. Um, but you know, obviously important. If you don't, if you don't ask, people are all too happy to keep getting, you know, work for free. Um, but that was sort of when it occurred to me, oh, wow, maybe I'm doing that writing thing. And, you know, kind of came into it in a, in an in a unexpected way that I wasn't even aware of at first. So when do you start thinking, okay, well, I'm going to keep doing this and I'm going I'm to let people pay me and and, and get over my my apprehension and say, hey, pay me. Right. <laughs> Here, when do you start to go from okay, I'm doing this kind of writing to I want to I want to write a middle grade novel, I want to write young adult. When does that start? That actually started long before. I mean, I have a ton of YA and middle grade novels in drawers from probably high school on. Um, Nothing that I ever finished. I guess to go back in middle school, I had a teacher who saw my love of theater and really um, encouraged me to learn all the facets of it. You know, I'd always been on stage and he encouraged me to investigate behind the scenes and directing, producing, costuming, all the aspects. And one of those aspects was writing. Um, and I wrote a play that actually won a contest and got produced in Baltimore, which was super cool. Um, I think I was in sixth grade at the time, and this is the teacher who, his name is Terry Sullivan, and he uh, is one of the inspirations for the teacher character in the book, Aftermath. Um, and he was the first person to really say to me, you know, you're, you're a writer, you can do this. You know, my parents had said it, but you know how it is with kids and parents, you, you know, it, it doesn't have the same weight as it does when somebody outside of your family who is, you know, doesn't have to say that to you <laughs> says, you know, you're really good at this. 
Um, so I was always writing. And again, you know, like we said before, it was always sort of in the back of my mind of like, oh, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to do that eventually. I'm going to do that someday. But it was scary. And I think I kind of put it off because writing felt so personal and so, um, you know, so naked and uh, and and emotionally vulnerable in a way that other things didn't to me. So um, I just always kind of had it in the back of my head that I would get to that someday and I would work on short stories and novels, but I never finished anything. Um, and so around the time I started the blog, I also started writing and acting for a, a web production company called Phoebe TV. Um, and we made short form internet entertainment content and sometimes branded content. And so I got I, I was able to get a job where I was both writing and acting, which was very fortuitous because it gave me a side-by-side -side comparison to sort of look at it and say, oh, wow, I really actually enjoy the writing side of this even more than the acting side of this. That was a really lovely turning point for me. And it was around the same time all the blogging stuff happened. Um, and uh, so I started writing in earnest, like I am going to be a YA and middle grade author um, around 2010, 2011, uh, I decided to take it seriously. I gave myself 10 weeks to write a book and I was like, I'm going to finish it. I'm going to actually do this. My daughter had just been born. So I hired a babysitter for once a week, three hours for 10 weeks. And I was like, I'm just going to do this. And of course, I would sneak in other writing sessions on the weekend or in the evenings. But but really, those three hours, I, I started with an outline and I wrote the, the whole thing. It was the first time I'd ever finished anything. Um, and that book is in a drawer, as a lot of first novels end up. But the the act of finishing it and seeing that I was capable of writing something start to finish was so exciting to me. And that was I was like, OK. All right, this this book, maybe not this one, but I can do this. And I also at the time I freelanced some for uh, Alloy Entertainment, which is a book packager. They come up with ideas for television and film and books that go along with those series. And um, I was writing ideas and pitches and outlines and stuff for them, uh, which I jokingly call my my MFA on the go. I learned so much about structure, content, marketing, um, you know, what the market wanted in general. Um, that was such a such a great sort of freelance side thing where I learned from some of the best people in the business. And I really, that's what taught me to outline, um, which is a huge part of my writing process and how I get anything done. So I owe that to Alloy. And this, uh, did you hit your 10 week goal when you sat down and said, I will do this? Say that again? Did you hit the 10 week goal? Oh, yeah, I, I did it in nine weeks. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> well, congrats. Like on the Ten years ago, uh, you. <laughs> um, is that pretty consistent? You set a goal for yourself and you hit it? Oh, gosh. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think as I age and grow, I'm learning to set different goals for myself. I'm learning to be a little bit more gentle with myself for better or for worse. Um, and I also, I mean, my life has grown substantially since that moment. That first time I set a goal for myself, I had a, you know, 
four or five month old daughter. Now I have two kids, they're getting older. I've got many more projects and irons in the fire. I think it's getting harder to set that kind of myopic goal for myself anymore. But in general, yes, I do think um, I'm getting better at being realistic about goals. And also, uh, you know, so much of that first book was about quantity and not quality. It was, I'm going to get 80,000 words down and complete this entire outline and much less about the story and the quality and the, you know, I learned from that process how much of writing is editing, obviously. I mean, I know everybody knows that, but I think you don't really know it until you've done it once and you see, like, oh, okay, yeah, that first draft is uh, not ready to go out into the world. That's going to require several revisions. And it sounds like common sense, but I, I think as writers, it's a kind of a rite of passage to go through that experience. Um, but but yes, I, I do respond pretty well to goals and deadlines for myself, um, you know, and I don't believe in writer's block. So there's that, you know. Uh, Kirsten, this is starting to sound like a job interview. <laughs> it's great. Meet them. Uh, would you would you say you're a, a people person or? <laughs> uh, What's my I, biggest weakness? All kinds of uh, questions about your process and about how you um, get your novels finished, how you came to find your your agent, your editor. Mm -hmm. Probably the best thing to do is let's talk about aftermath. Awesome. Uh, which is available now, esteemed audience. You can be pulling it up as we're talking. You could add it to your cart of whatever vendor you prefer, uh, or check it out from the library. Will there be uh, an audiobook available soon? There is an audiobook. It's already available. I'm glad you asked. Um, this was a, a lovely little um, convergence of all of my various jobs and different life phases. I got to do the audiobook myself. I read the audiobook. So if you like hearing authors read their own work, you can download the audiobook and listen to me read Aftermath, which is, you know, was just the thrill of a lifetime for me to get to put on my actor hat again, uh, which is something I really hadn't done in probably a decade. Um, and it was tremendously fun and such a great experience. Well, you are. There's all of your acting training coming up once again. And of course, you're going to have to go out and do however many interviews like this forever for all of the books you're going to continue to, to write. Gosh, I mean, I should be so lucky. It's so, I mean, this is such a privilege. It's one of the things about being an aspiring writer for so long and wanting desperately to get published and, you know, be part of it is, you know, I've listened to podcasts like this one and several others for years. And you imagine like, oh, someday maybe I'll get to do that. And what will I say? And what will I do? And it's such a privilege to to reach this moment and get to finally do it. Well, it's um, as promised before, I will not summarize your book. I won't make you sit through it. <laughs> also going to try not to read passages of it to you because I've done that in previous shows and uh, then future me hates past me like oh why did you make the author sit through you reading part of the book so I, I won't do that tonight um, why don't you tell uh, esteemed audience kind of give them an overview of what they need to know about aftermath and then I've got all kinds of questions about how it was created great um, Aftermath is the story of Lucy, who's a 12-year-old girl who loves math. She's sort of a self-appointed math whiz. And she and her parents move to a new town following the death of her younger brother. 
uh, named Theo. And the book starts out about eight months after Theo has passed away from a congenital heart defect, which means he's been sick pretty much all of his life. He was five when he died. They've kind of always known that he wasn't going to live very long and he had a lot of medical and health problems. So his, uh, Lucy's parents decide they want a fresh start and they move to a new town that's not too far from their old town. Uh, their parents get to keep their jobs. You know, their life is pretty much the same. But for Lucy, this is a completely fresh start. And she knows at the start that the town they're moving to is a town where a school shooting happened four years earlier. And the kids that she's starting school with for seventh grade are all survivors of this mass shooting. Um, and while Lucy knows that intellectually, I think it's a different story altogether to get there on the first day and realize that there are real people behind these stories and statistics. And she is confronted with her classmates who um, are not used to new people. She's the first new student to start at the school or in this class with all of these kids. And they're not sure how to act around her either. So they're all fairly forthcoming and upfront with her about their experience in the school shooting and kind of to get that out of the way. Everybody wants to tell her where they were and what what happened to them and where they are now. And uh, it really catches Lucy off guard and she makes the choice to not tell them about her brother who died. Um, she feels very much like grief can't be compared and these people are survivors of something so big and so sudden and so violent that she can't possibly compare to the loss of her brother after a long illness as she saw it coming she got to say goodbye a very different situation so she keeps that a secret and uh you know she's always found solace in math math is her thing it's the way her brain works uh but her teacher mr jackson introduces the mathematical concept of infinity and all of a sudden lucy is faced for the first time with something in math that she doesn't quite understand um and uh, mr jackson also teaches an after-school class which he um convinces Lucy to take, which is a mime class. Um, and there's some, you know, improv. And this is where my theater background comes into. I wanted the kids to do some kind of theater class, but that was a little different. They take a mime class. And through that, Lucy makes friends and figures out a lot of stuff about herself, a lot of things about uh, what she needs in order to heal and move on and, uh, and figure out who she is. Red, Red, you you took a mime class as well, hadn't you? I sure did. Yeah, um, I, you know, at the time I was not that excited to take the mime class. It was, I was in sixth grade at middle school and the same teacher that I mentioned before who encouraged me to write a play, Mr. Sullivan, was teaching this after school mime class and I, you know, I had always done theater and had loved theater, but I'd always done musical theater and was very comfortable with a script and music and choreographed dance things and you know there's a lot to kind of hide behind there i know it's a cliche but i was actually a shy kid and i felt more comfortable on stage than off because i had a script and all those things that actors say you know it's a cliche because of for a reason because it's true um and mime class terrified me because there are no words there are no props there's no script there's no you know, none of the things that I was used to hiding behind. And as a result, of course, it was a really, really big growing experience for me. Um, at this time, let's see, so I was in sixth grade, so this was probably 1990, 91. Um, 
improv classes weren't everywhere the way that they are now for kids, I think. You know, it's easy to find an improv class for your kid. At the time, that wasn't something that I'd come across very much. So the idea of mine was partially that we got to improvise and craft and create our own stories. So I think it's also part of this this whole thread of me becoming a writer. Um, I got to make up a story that I got to act out in the mime show as opposed to starting with a script that was already written for me. So it was a really formative experience for me. And when it came time to try and think of something that I wanted Lucy and her friends to experience in this book, I think mime was a really natural choice because, as the teacher says in the book, these are kids who have had a lot of words thrown at them in their short lives so far. You know, these are kids who've survived um, a lot of trauma. They've all been to therapy. They've had a lot of assemblies. They've had a lot of group therapy. They've had a lot of discussions. What an interesting challenge for them to do something that doesn't have words, to find other ways to express themselves. And, you know, of course, sort of the irony of Lucy finding her voice through an, an art form that doesn't involve words. So I, I'd read that uh, this idea came to you after the shooting in, in San Bernardino uh, mm -hmm. in 2015. Mm -hmm. um, when the idea comes to you, does it come to you uh, all at once? When does it break down that this is a story that I'm going to write that's in part about grief and part about mind class, uh, all, all kinds of things? How does it form and when do you, when do you put something down on paper? This particular story came to me completely fully formed, um, which I think was probably the first time that that happened. Um, it, it obviously, you know, our subconscious is a mysterious thing. I'm sure there must have been moments earlier in my life where I had been working out parts of this story because I don't believe that you know the muse visits you and gives you the idea like obviously it has to come from somewhere but to me it really felt kind of like the muse visited me and gave me an idea <laughs> to the point where I said to my agent at the time I was like is this already a book am I like did I read this or did I come up with this idea because it felt so very concrete to me um so yes so the idea kind of arrived fully formed and at the time uh, my son was 10 months old and my daughter was four and change. And um, I was a full-time stay-at-home mom, part-time beauty blogger, and I did not have the luxury of time to really sit down and, and write it all out in one chunk. Um, I always say that I feel like if I had had 48 continuous uninterrupted hours, I feel like I could have just sat down and written the story out because it, it was already mostly there in my head. But because I had two small children and, you know, other stuff going on, it took me about three weeks to get out the first draft of Aftermath. And pretty much all, well, not all, most of that early draft is in the, is in the final book. Um, it was shorter and, you know, uh, sort of, we've added so many scenes and dimensions and things in. But the initial story, the the sort of bare bones version was all there in that first, you know, like just fever dream of a three week writing process. Um, and I, you know, of course, owe a debt of gratitude to um, my agent and editor and, and the millions of people who helped me flesh out this idea. But the core of it, was sort of there at the beginning.
And how many how many books had you written prior to this one? This was my third completed book. And I was definitely one of those writers who thought, you know, oh, well, if you finish it, like, why, you know, why can't it be published? Like, you know, like, I'll work on it and I'll polish it and I'll edit it. And I was kind of heartbroken by the idea that some books just don't get published. Um, and through this process, I sort of made peace with those first two books, maybe never seeing the light of day. But this one became for me about so much more than the book. Obviously, the issue of gun violence and of trauma and um, mental health are all issues that are so important to me. I learned what it is to, to sort of create something that I wasn't prepared to let go. I was not prepared to put this book in a drawer, even when it got really difficult. And a lot of people didn't want to deal with this topic. It's a really polarizing topic, which I found surprising because to me, it just seemed so uh, non-controversial, you know, like children should not be killed by guns. I, I It felt to me very simple. And I learned firsthand how complicated this issue is for people. But um, this was the so this was the third book I'd written, but it was the first one that I that I just absolutely could not let go. Uh, I I felt like I really really had to see this idea through. So what was it you think that that drove you to this idea specifically? Because this is uh, although you are making yourself vulnerable, this is not an, an autobiography. You, to the best of my knowledge, have not been in a school shooting. Correct. And I don't think you had anybody die of a, a congenital uh, heart issue either. No, both of those things are fictionalized. It's funny because um, one of the early publishers who rejected the book said, you know, I don't get the mime class. Like, why, why on earth would you choose a mime class? And the irony was that's the only part of the book that is autobiographical. You know, I guess her, her thing she said, she was like, I don't buy it. Nobody would take a mime class. And the, the irony was that everything else was fiction. That was the one thing that was actually true. Um, although I am uh, very fortunate to not have had either of those traumatic uh, experiences of either surviving a mass shooting or of losing a close family member to a heart disease, I did have an incident of trauma in high school where I was physically attacked. Um, and I, I think I drew from my experience of trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder to, uh, to sort of breathe some life and some realistic experiences into the characters in the book um, and was able to, to sort of draw on that without even realizing it for a long time. It took me a while to figure out where where this where the ideas were coming from i mean i think there's a whole interesting area to be explored of of our subconscious and where ideas for writing comes and the intersection between writing and psychology and our own you know working out our own issues. and it certainly took me longer than i now in hindsight can imagine to figure out how much of this book was personal for me even though it was not directly related to experiences i had um and I, I think I sort of figured that out as another thing that an editor really took um, took issue with and decided not to buy the book because of was that when Lucy meets all of the kids at the middle at her new middle school, they instantly say to her, you know, I was here on the day of the school shooting. This is what happened to me. This is where I was. And I lost this person. And, you know, one after another, they they're very forthcoming about their trauma and their grief with her. And one editor just said, that's that's not how it works. That's not that's not realistic. 
And that was the moment I realized that was the autobiographical part for me. I went through a part of my trauma healing process where um, I, after a few years of shoving it down and pretending it didn't happen, I was finally dealing with it. I was in therapy. I was working on it. And part of that process for me, which I learned is, is actually very common trauma response for some people, is going through a phase where you want to disclose your trauma to everybody you meet. And in my early 20s, if you met me in New York, I'd be like, hi, I'm Emily. Let me tell you about this crazy thing that happened to me. Just get this out of the way and let me tell you the whole story. And thank goodness that phase didn't last very long. And I apologize to everyone I met in my early 20s who had to hear my story. Um, but that was a very personal part of my journey that made its way into the story before I even really realized where that came from. And it was in sort of defending that to, uh, you know, to an editor that I realized, oh, no, no, this is this is part of my story. And that's when I started realizing that this book was so much more personal for me than I had originally realized. I find, and this is probably just the uh, uh, Hoosierness uh, within me speaking, um, but I prefer uh, I, I'm annoyed when I'm writing something and I spot the, my my direct personal connection. I prefer that it, I'd be blind to it until afterwards because I know it's going to be there and I'm going to find it and I'm mm -hmm. going to have where I go ah oh that that was crying out to be said and now I've said it and I see it. But after I finish the story because if I start thinking about it while I'm in the story, then I'm going to start shaping it around. It's going to become therapy with Rob rather than let's tell the fun story. Exactly. I do think I. I I think there was a self-protective part of my brain that, you know, purposefully did not want to connect to some of this stuff until I was finished writing it. And that's that's exactly how it worked, because it isn't about me. And, and there is that funny line of being a writer where, of course, everything you write is personal and everything is in some way about you because it all is coming from your brain. But in another way, you know, this story is not about me. And I've been very honest with that and and also um it was really important to me in publishing this book and telling the story from day one i've always felt strongly that i'm donating a portion of my proceeds to um gun violence prevention advocacy organizations because this isn't my story to tell and i want to be very clear and careful about um you know recognizing the people who are directly affected by this and drawing attention where it deserves and making this book part of the solution and not just putting it out there and leaving people hanging so um it, it was important to me to be very clear that no this is not my story but at the same time there are definitely elements of it that are incredibly personal to me and i think that's what makes it relatable i hope to the reader is that you can pick up this book and even if it's not your story either, you can relate to hopefully more than one of the characters. And it's another reason why Lucy, the main character, is very, very specifically and intentionally an outsider coming into this situation of trauma survivors. Now, the fact that she has her own separate trauma is, of course, a different issue. But in terms of the sort of, of the school shooting trauma, she's entering this situation as an outsider which I think I hope makes a very help uh, a helpful proxy for readers coming into it who are statistically likely to also be outsiders to this experience, and it just gives them an entryway uh, to to hear the story and experience it alongside Lucy, who wasn't there and didn't experience it herself either. Mm -hmm. 
uh, as I was reading, I've told this story on the podcast uh, before, so I won't uh, I won't take long with it. But I uh, was pre-pandemic. I was substitute teaching part of the time as a way to research for writing about young people. Oh. Let me show up and talk to the young people. Um, and I had the experience of teaching a class, and we did a uh, school shooting drill. Uh, and the class had been in a shooting the year before, the, the class that I was with. And so we had to be very careful. They were immediately traumatized. Some had to leave the room, uh, go with a counselor. And mm -hmm. I thought, well, okay, I have this connection. So I feel, um, I, I feel uh, a, not a relationship, but I, 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 I think I understand Lucy because of that experience. I feel someone, and it occurred to me that this is America. I imagine a lot of readers, uh, unfortunately, across the country are going to have some kind of experience. I think, sadly, everybody who's old enough to read this book has an entry point. Um, and that was something that came up a lot. I think I've alluded to this, but let me just say this was a really hard book to sell. Um, there were a lot of editors who read it and said, gosh, this is a beautiful book. This is a great story, blah, 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 blah. I just either I can't handle it. It's too sad. I personally don't want to deal with it, which I get because when you, you know, for those of you listening, I think all of your your listeners probably understand publishing, but for anybody who doesn't know publishing, once you sell a book, you're looking at probably a year and a half to two years between acquiring it and when it actually gets published. So when editors and all the, the team working on it agree to buy a book, they're looking at living with this material for a long time. So I do respect the fact that sometimes an editor will have to say, I am not prepared for one reason or another to live with this for the next two years of my life. Um, but we did get a lot of that. And then the biggest pushback was a lot of editors said, you know, I don't think, you know, do you, do you want to rewrite this as YA? Because I think high schoolers are talking about this, but middle schoolers are not talking about this. This isn't a topic for them. And at the time, my daughter was in kindergarten and they were having active shooter drills at school. So I was very aware that even kids as young as five years old and even younger, depending on, you know, pre-K and nursery school and stuff like that, young kids were already going through active shooter drills. We're already coming home with questions and language around this issue that maybe they didn't fully understand or didn't know how to process. And so to me, middle school felt almost like on the later side of, of discussing this and bringing this up to kids, because as a parent, I was dealing firsthand with the reality of having a school-aged child in America. So that was very jarring to me at the time to have editors say, gosh, I don't think this is on middle schoolers' minds. And I think there's a certain degree of wishful thinking, and I'm guilty of it too. I think we as grown-ups want to sometimes protect kids by not bringing up an issue that is really hard. And I think we've all learned from one experience or another that kids are far more perceptive and far more aware than we sometimes think. And that they really come to these situations um, with an openness and a gratitude for the discussion being started, whereas we come to it with a lot of baggage and assuming that it's going to be hard or sad for them. And a lot of times kids just want an entry point for a discussion. And I've certainly found that with this book, that kids tend to be really uh, one of two reactions, which is, oh, thank goodness somebody's talking about this so I can ask my questions. Or curious of like, oh yeah, I do wonder about that. And it's interesting. I'm, you know, I'm grateful to have this conversation starter. Whereas adults tend to bring to it 
sort of the weight of the world because we've all experienced a lot of things, you know, and we, we make the assumption that kids are bringing that level of gravity to it, whereas oftentimes they're coming in really just wanting to have a conversation. But I do wonder, because um, we've got a generation now that will remember uh, that during a raging pandemic, so many wanted them back in school immediately and some were arguing, don't wear your mask, breathe on each other. We must have our right to, to bear arms at all costs. And if that means that we have to read about school shootings every week in America, that's just going to be the cost. Right. And I don't know what that looks like. Um, but I know that that is going to be that, that that's something that's coming and, and, and is here. Um, yeah, I know that you're a, a member uh, of a few different um, uh, gun app, not gun advocacy seekers. I know you're a member of Moms Demand Action for Gun yeah. Sense America. Yeah. Um, and that you're uh, actively involved um, in, in hoping to foster change. So who is the ideal reader for this story and what is it that you're hoping they'll take away and possibly do as a result of having read it? That is a fantastic question. My ideal reader is really families or um, classrooms because I believe that this is the kind of book that kids should be reading, but they shouldn't read it totally unsupervised or on their own. I believe uh, I, I, my hope is that this is a conversation starter for kids. Um, and of course, you know, I am not a therapist and I'm not a doctor, but what I have to offer to this cause is a, as a storyteller and a conversation starter. So it's my hope that kids will read this and um, have discussions with their parents about it or with their teachers or a librarian or somebody in their life who can offer them um, you know, a safe space to ask questions or to have a conversation that maybe otherwise it wouldn't have started. So it's my hope that adults will read this book too. Um, I think also because, you know, you and I both have just, you know, said how we have thought about what it's like to be a kid today because of, by virtue of our, you know, writing for kids. But I think there are some adults who haven't had the opportunity to think about the issues that face kids today in their entirety and what it's like to actually, you know, live in this version of America. So I hope it's also an entry point for some adults to put themselves in kids' shoes and think about what kids might be really facing and thinking about. Um, and what I hope people will do as a result of reading this book is, is sort of threefold. There are three organizations that I'm really passionate about. One is, as you said, is Moms Demand, which a lot of their focus is on the legislative change around gun laws, safe storage, um, you know, legislating um, safety, background checks, all sorts of things like that. I really admire the work they're doing in that vein. And then um, another organization I really love and admire is the Sandy Hook Promise. And their focus is really sort of more of the preventative take on gun violence, which means fostering empathy, recognizing uh, people who are having trouble, uh, teaching kids to be kind, to look for the signs, to, you know, think ahead. And then the last organization that I really love is called the Anna Grace Project, which, like the Sandy Hook Promise, was founded by parents of a child who was killed at the in the Sandy Hook massacre. And that focuses really on trauma recovery, therapy, providing resources for kids who have been through um, traumatic incidents, whether it's a school shooting or something else. But I think those are the three things that I hope kids get out of this book. And of course, 
not everybody needs to be involved in all three of those areas. But I'd like to offer three options of there are ways that if you read this book and you're moved by it and you want to see change, there are so many people out there doing wonderful things. And so it's my hope that kids will see that there are all sorts of options. And no matter what your your gift is or your ability to do something about it, there are lots of different ways to affect change. Um, I, I wrote an article about this recently and, and really put some thought into sort of the question of how to talk to kids about hard things. And I, I would say there's three H's. The first one is honesty. Be honest. It doesn't mean you have to tell the whole story. It doesn't mean you have to pull aside a four-year-old and discuss the nitty-gritty of, you know, that you in an age-appropriate way, you want to be honest with the kid. The second thing is to offer some kind of hope, which I like to quote Mr. Rogers, look for the helpers. You know, in any crisis, you can always see the people who are rushing to, to do good. And that's that's where those gun violence prevention advocacy organizations come in, where I, you know, provide the kids with hope. There are people out there working on it and you can too. And then the last thing is help, which is either offer the kid a way that they can help in the cause because it's really empowering to get involved in some kind of advocacy, whether it's policy change or raising money or getting involved in, you know, helping people uh, process and recover, um, but offering them an opportunity to be a helper or to get help. Sometimes, you know, the, the help stands for like offering the kid an opportunity for therapy or for a group or a guidance counselor or something. So you know, honesty, offer them hope and offer them help uh, to either be a helper or to receive help. Um, because I think kids are just, you know, especially with the internet, they are aware of so much more than we want them to be or than we think they are. And the best thing we can give them is honesty and the full story. So I hope that by writing this book, I'm contributing to that and giving them honesty and also providing them with ways to carry on from it, not leaving them hanging. I think um, particularly the Anna Grace Project is such a great resource for kids who maybe read this book and say, oh gosh, I have more questions or I have more issues or I wanna know more, there are resources out there made by mental health professionals who know better than I how to, to actually guide kids through, through this. But it's my hope that Aftermath is a conversation starter. Uh, and then, of course, uh, to lighten the mood a bit, and because I'm, I'm genuinely fascinated, there are many impressive blurbs uh, on this book, but by God, you've got Amy Schumer saying that this book is a gift to the culture. How does that come about, or is that not an appropriate story? And if so, I'll just cut this right out. <laughs> um, no, that's fine. I'll just say, uh, I mean, I was fortunate to know people who knew people who knew Amy and was able to get her a copy of the book. And because, I mean, I don't want to speak for her. I have not directly spoken to her. I was just fortunate enough to be able to pass the book along. But she has been pretty vocal about her her commitment to um, ending gun violence and, and helping with this. She's involved in every town creative council and Moms Demand and has been very unfortunately was affected in terms of there was a mass shooting in a movie theater during a showing of her movie uh, Trainwreck many years ago in Colorado. And so she's been um, very involved in the gun sense movement. And so I knew it would appeal to her and was able to get her a copy. And I mean, it's just the most generous thing in the world for her to take the time to, you know, to lend her name and, and that blurb to it because um, it, you know, this is all about getting 
getting eyeballs on it and, and you know the the gift she gave me of doing that because we have this passion in common is is such a gift and i'm forever forever grateful i'm uh, watching our time and i see that it's it's all flown away what what happened to <laughs> Uh, but esteemed audience knows I'm going to ask, oh, no time like the present. Uh, Emily Barth Eisler, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? You know, I knew you were going to ask this question because, like I said, I've listened to this podcast. And I thought about making up something fantastic to tell you. But I just gave this speech about being honest. <laughs> So, uh, no, I am sad to say I don't have a, a UFO or ghost or, um, you know, any kind of story like that. And I, I mean, I'm open to it. You know, I'm here. Like, tell tell the UFOs and the ghosts I'm, I'm available. I'm ready to have my mind opened. But, no, I can't say I've ever had any experience with any of that. Have well you? Uh, yes, but every time I tell the story, not not a flying saucer, uh, every time I tell the story of my uh, ghost encounter, it's not a middle grade appropriate story and it gets cut out of the show. <laughs> I haven't I haven't found a version I can share with a middle grade friendly audience yet, but I will I will say my grandmother saw uh, a flying saucer and she absolutely convinced me at a young age because my grandmother uh, was not somebody who joked around. She had been uh, driving home and she got a speeding ticket because a flying saucer came down over her car and was uh, keeping pace with her for wow. a few miles and she sped up. And of course, by uh, the time the flying saucer um, uh, departs, she's still so freaked out that she's flooring it all the way home. Uh, and then <laughs> she gets pulled over. Uh, and, you know, the cynic in me always wonders that maybe that's a way to just explain the, the ticket to my grandfather. <laughs> but I don't think so. I, I heard her tell the story and she looked me in the eye. I thought, nope, this really happened. Uh, and so although I, I've uh, perused um, plenty of convincing evidence and plus the uh, the Pentagon has come right out and said, yes, we're studying flying saucers. Yeah, I was just going to say there was there was an article very recently where they know bones about it 100 percent have made it very clear that there is something. Um, you know, or that they're looking into it. And that's, you know, I, one of my favorite movies is Arrival. Have you seen that one? Yes. What an emotionally, what a sneaky, emotionally devastating film. Yes. Yes. Uh, I think about that film all the time. And um, I mean, so much of it, uh, the, the sort of the, the idea of time being a circle and, um, I mean, it, it almost relates to aftermath in terms of like grief and loss and how we keep alive the memories of the people that we miss and things like that. But obviously also deals so much with, uh, you know, encountering uh, creatures from another planet. And I, I find that so, so fascinating. That might be, uh, would be neck and neck with, with E.T. at the hardest I've ever cried at a film. Oh, really? We just, showed, we just showed E.T. to our kids. <laughs> we're, we're having fun. Oh, Amy Adams is talking to the aliens. I'm sure yeah. this will only lead to some place that won't confront me with, with, with every, um, with every uh, ponderance I've ever had about choices I've made in my life. Nope, there it is. And uh, I'm weeping. <laughs> yeah, no, I cried really hard in that one, too. But I also, I don't know, but I left it feeling really hopeful. Oh, uh, sure. You know, there was something about it that was just incredibly 
soothing and satisfying, but um, oh yeah, what a masterpiece of a movie. That is great. Well, I wanted to ask, what uh, what have you got coming up? What's uh, what's next for you? It's a great question. Um, I don't know yet. Um, I am trying to uh, really enjoy this moment with Aftermath. I'm hoping to get to do a lot of virtual school visits and talk to kids and um, you know engage more with gun violence prevention ad advocacy groups uh, in hopes of of really making a difference because this is. A topic about which I'm really passionate. You know, for me, this isn't just a book. This is, you know, part of what I, what I hope to contribute to a movement that is already in progress and already really helpful and um, and important. Um, but I have written a couple other things, and my agent is shopping them around. And um, I, you know, like I said before, they sort of span from I've got a picture book, uh, an early chapter book series. And a couple of YA things. So I hope to expand out to other age ranges. Um, you know, I find it's it's the story that drives me, you know, and the story is appropriate for a certain age group as opposed to sitting down and saying, I want to write for this age group. It's more about the story idea comes to me and then how can I effectively tell this story to the appropriate age group? So I just, all I want is to get to write more books. You know, when people say, what are your hopes for Aftermath? And, you know, in, in terms of like, what does success mean to you? I always say, success would mean that they let me write another book. That's all I want. I want to get to write more books. I love telling stories and I'm excited to uh, to get to do that some more. Denny Villeneuve calls you and says, hey, we're making a rival too, and I need somebody to play Amy Adams' sister. Uh, are you available? Is that is that would that would you consider a return to acting or is it uh, pretty much books and writing from here on out, you think? I really think it's books and writing. My hope for acting is that I think when my kids are all grown up and maybe I'm in my like 60s, 70s, 80s, I think it would be really fun to revisit acting from a really totally different angle. Um, for now, I, I cannot quite imagine picking it back up. It feels like a different lifetime. I feel so completely content with um, my creative life right now as a writer. Uh, I mean, never say never, obviously. But no, I, I don't particularly see myself returning to acting. Um, I I find writing for me to be so much more creative and so much more exciting. Um, and I get to write in my sweatpants. So you really, I mean, there's no, there's no competition there. Like writing is definitely more fun than acting. Um, I get to be at home. There are snacks, you know, it's just, it's, it's my happy place. So I hope there's a lot more writing and then, you know, if I become that grandma on that sitcom when I'm 80, then that's just icing on the cake. <laughs> uh, Emily Beth, actually, this has been an absolute pleasure, and I so appreciate oh, you. Thank you. I know that there's uh, all kinds of questions I still have for you, but the good news is you're going to keep publishing. So we'll do this again, and I'll come up with all new questions. I really uh, hope so, and I would love to talk to you again, like any time. This has been so much fun, and I really appreciate your your very thoughtful and insightful questions. It's really fun to get to talk about it. 
we've got uh, one last one for you because this is always the the closer uh note i like to end on is if you could go back to the, the start of your writing career middle wherever you'd like uh and give yourself some advice that would have made your path easier uh, and might make easier the paths of everyone listening to us what would you go back and tell yourself this is a great question and i have a lot of different ways that I could answer because there are so many things I wish I'd understood at the start. But I think what I wish I could have said to myself at the very beginning of my writing career is you have value and you're a writer, whether your work is being published or not, whether people like it or not, there is value in telling a story. And and I wish I could have told myself, you know, relax, like it will happen eventually. Writing is so much, of course, about talent and ideas and hard work, but a lot of it is just about persistence. And at the beginning, when people would say to me, oh, you're so persistent and hardworking, I would think of that sort of as a backhanded compliment because um, I wanted to be successful just because I was talented. But I see now that success, and I put that in large air quotes, first of all is subjective, but second of all, so much of it is about sticking to it and perseverance. And I see now what a compliment that was. And so I wish I could tell my earlier self to just chill out a little bit and know that I'd get there eventually and that the work along the way, you know, every book that I didn't sell caused me to write more books. And that in and of itself is kind of the only thing you can control. You know, every every time I finished a book, I would just start another one because what else can you do? You keep writing when you have a story to tell. And, the, you know, I, I would like to tell the writers out there listening that there's inherent value in that, whether that story becomes a New York Times bestseller or lives in your drawer. There's so much value in telling a story. And I mean, if I had time, I would read them all. I wish I could read everything that everybody is writing all the time. <laughs> just the enhancement of the the writer's life if nothing else exactly so. exactly yeah and if you share it with one other person and it resonates for them or it you know it opens one person's mind it's it's all worth it you know it's uh i i feel like the value is in in telling the story and sometimes like you said sometimes it, the writer is the person who needs to hear the story the most i think that was certainly the case with you know, maybe my first book and maybe the second one, but, um, and then you get to a point where you are telling a story that you realize definitely needs to get shared, but sometimes you're telling the story for you and that's okay too. All my stories are for me and if the reader likes them, hey, that's a bonus. <laughs> I love that. I think that's probably the healthiest approach I've heard towards writing because there's so much we can't control. We don't get to decide what happens to our story. And that's that's been a weird experience for me just in the past two weeks of Aftermath being out in the world is the realization of, oh, wow, it's uh, it's having its own life that has nothing to do with me. And people are reading it that I don't even know about. And I may never know what they thought of it and they may not like it. And, you know, this, this idea of having a story um, that has a life so far beyond you is incredibly exciting and a little bit scary. I always had this kind of naive notion that um, like in a sixth sense kind of like E.T. communicating with Elliot, uh, mm -hmm. feeling that when a lot of people, maybe not just one or two, but, you know, thousands of people are reading your book, you would feel they're reading and there would there would nope, nothing. 
<laughs> they just read it and you go mm. on about your business. Yeah. Yeah, no, I like that idea. I love the the idea that you would feel it. I, I wish that I, that could be felt. That would be very cool, uh, especially if people are reading it and feeling positively about it. Well, assuming uh, everyone that's listening to us is picking up their copy of Aftermath, they're reading it, they're having all kinds of thoughts and feelings, and they want to get in touch with you on social media or find you online, where would they do that? Um, my my handle everywhere is very easy. It's just my full name, Emily Barth Eisler. So my website is emilybartheisler.com. Facebook, uh, not sorry, not Facebook, Twitter and Instagram are both Emily and Barth Eisler. And I love to talk to readers. I love to talk to writers. Reach out. I've got an email address on my website where you can contact me. I love doing school visits. I'm doing free Zoom school visits this year. As long as COVID is still a thing, I will be doing free Zoom school visits. Um, so I'm, I'm eager to talk to people who've read Aftermath and answer questions and start those conversations. As always, esteemed audience, head to middlegradeninja.com for thousands of interviews with all the best people. Um, the back catalog of the show, download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. It will change your life. And God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week.